Hey guys, Dave Riesinger here. Redeemed Church Online, different location, same guy, and we're preaching out of the same Bible. Can I get an amen in the house? Hey, I want to start off today this sermon with a little group exercise. So I'm going to say a word, and I want you to think of the picture that comes to mind or pay attention to the feeling or the idea that you get when I say this word in just a moment. So get in yoga position, get your little meditative state on, whatever you got to do. Here's the word. The word is repent. What comes to mind? What do you feel when you hear that word? Repent. Negative feeling, positive feeling. I don't know. Maybe you get this picture of the angry preachers on the corner with the signs, the sandwich boards that say you're going to hell, repent, or judgment is coming. Now, that's in the Bible, but maybe it's not supposed to be presented exactly that way. Uh, maybe there's two sides to that idea. Uh, maybe you get a feeling of guilt when you hear the word repent. Oh man, there's been things in my life that God's been kind of nagging me about or you know, tapping on my shoulder about and I feel a little guilty or maybe you feel fear. You know, maybe you think that repentance is just saying sorry. I don't know what kind of word this uh, or what kind of feeling or idea this word brings up in you. Uh, but this is a very, very important word to define correctly because the way we see this word, the way we understand this word, it, uh, it reveals and it also impacts the way that we see ourselves and the way that we see God. And so I today pray that God would help us get a, an understanding that repentance is actually beautiful. It's a beautiful thing. It's not a negative thing. It's actually a positive thing. It, it's not a uh, punishment thing. It's actually a call to life and it's a call to transformation. But this word, sometimes uh, it feels more like a judgmental warning to escape death and destruction than it does a generous welcome to experience salvation and restoration. Now, both of them are true. This word involves a warning about judgment and an invitation to life. But today... Maybe we can get a better glimpse into the scripture about what this word means and how it applies to our life. And so if we're going to understand beautiful repentance, which is the title of the message, we also have to understand sin, okay? Because sin is what we're going to be repenting of. And, you know, sometimes we're unaware of what sin really means and, and how it plays into our life. Sin is a nature we're born with, number one. Okay, so it's like a DNA. Our great-grandfather, Adam, he messed up bad and he became corrupt, so we became corrupt. There's a lot of teaching behind that. But uh, we're born with a nature or this inward inclination to sin. That's why a child can lie and you didn't teach him to lie. Uh, or, or her, because baby children that are girls too still lie. Um, that's why a kid can steal a, a cookie and and say and deny it straight to your face. Look you straight dead in your ocular cavities and tell you, that he did not steal it or she. But where do they get that? Uh, if there's an inward inclination called sin. Um, sin is also, or sins are the things that we commit, the actions that we commit that are in opposition to God's desire and his design for our life. So sin is a nature and it's also actions that come from that nature. It's really, it's missing the mark. It's like shooting an arrow and the bullseye is God's plan or his standard and sin is to miss the mark, right? Here, here's an interesting thought. Are we sinners because we sin or do we sin because we're sinners, right? 
Well, well, some people will think, well, what makes a person a sinner is if they sin. But the Bible actually teaches the reason we sin is because we are sinners. And I'm not going to go through the, the whole teaching on the, the, the roots of the gospel, the foundation of the fact that Jesus Christ came because we were sinners and born into sin. And he took our punishment onto him. He died on the cross and he took the wrath of God for us. He died for us so that we could live. And now he wants to live in us. So we lay our lives down so that we can walk in victory. So we can have victory over sin and sins. And we can be seen as righteous in the eyes of God. So that is salvation. But the Bible says and teaches that all sin is an offense to God and it demands judgment. But here's the cool thing. Are you ready for the cool thing? Here it comes. James 2.13 says that mercy triumphs over justice or judgment. Meaning that God has to judge sin because he's holy. He has to. It'd be like, you've heard this before, but it'd be like a judge who's sitting in front of a murderer and this murderer has killed all these people and their families are there and they want justice and they want the judge to do a good job. And the judge says, hey, look, I'm a nice guy and because I'm caring, I'm going to let you go. No, a, a judge has to do his job. So God has to punish sin. But he would rather show mercy. And again, this is where Jesus comes in. Jesus said, I took the punishment for all who have put their faith in me. They receive the mercy that God wants to give and has given in the person of Jesus. But those who have not received the mercy of Jesus Christ, who have not believed on him as the way, the truth, and the life, there still awaits a judgment on judgment day at the great white throne. Now, we have to deal with that. Right? So that's the most important decision we can make. But after we become Christians, the cool thing is, is we don't sin anymore. I haven't sinned since the day I got saved. I came close on October 14th, 2016. I'm kidding. No, we sin. All the, the Bible says that we stumble in many things, right? But now we're not sinning from a place of being slaves to sin. We have the upper hand, but we're in the process of being transformed or sanctified is the big religious word there, right? So, so we we're, we're saved, we're righteous in the eyes of God, but we still wrestle with this flesh, this world and the devil that, that pull on us to miss the mark and, and go in opposition of God's word. Now, when we sin, I know this sounds elementary, but it gets, it, it gets pretty deep here. When we sin, what happens? What do you, what do you feel when you miss the mark, when you do wrong, right? Whether you're a Christian or not, we feel bad when we do wrong. Unless your conscience is like seared deeply, you're going to feel remorse. You're going to feel guilt, regret, anxiety, fear, right? Unrest, shame. Like, like this is the same as like the body feels pain when we get cut and there's an infection. Why? Because the body is saying, yo, you need to get some, some ointment on this. That's a weird word, ointment. You need to get some medicine on this or go see a physician because this little infection could spread, take over your whole body, and you could be six feet deep if you don't pay attention to this pain, right? And in the same way, our soul, it, it feels the infection of sin and that sorrow is like the response of the soul to say something's wrong. You need to go to the great physician and let him heal it and attend to it, right? So, so this is a gift from God. 
sorrow, or conviction. Right? So John 16, 8 says that when he, the Holy Spirit, comes, he will convict the world in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. So the Holy Spirit, he 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 allows this sorrow or remorse or feeling of guilt when we do wrong. The word convict uh, means to convince of wrongdoing or to expose guilt. Now, when we go to the first sinners that committed the very first sin in the garden, these are our great-great-grandparents, Adam and Eve. Check this out. Now, look what happens when they sin. Look at the 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 what comes out of a person, what a, a person feels, and how a person responds when they sin. And this ties into repentance. Like, how do we repent? How do we respond when we feel the sting of wrongdoing in our life? And, and why is it important to understand what God thinks and what God wants us to do when we experience this? So Genesis 3, 7-13. So after they sin, um, they eat the forbidden fruit. And the eyes of both of them were open, and they knew that they were naked. So before that, they were just walking around, like had no idea. Um, they didn't have their drawers on, right? Um, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Now watch this. Then the man and his wife heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the breeze of the day, and they hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees in the garden. Verse 9 says, But the Lord God called out to man, Where are you? I heard your voice in the garden, Adam replied, and I was afraid because I was naked. It's a good reason to be afraid. So I hid myself. Good reason to hide yourself too. Who told you you were naked? Asked the Lord God. Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? Now, God knew the answer to that. He wanted Adam to check it out for himself. And the man answered, the woman you gave me, she gave me the fruit from the tree and I ate it. He was like, hey man, I didn't ask for this lady. You just one day showed up and gave her to me. Now, he didn't have any complaints about her that we read about before that. But all of a sudden, when it hits the fan and trouble's coming and they're cornered and naked and afraid, all of a sudden, what does he do? He turns and says, God, you gave me this defective woman. She's the one that gave it to me. Kind of interesting. Now, let's let's see what happens here. Um, and the man answered, uh, or then, then God said to the woman, what is it that you have done? The serpent deceived me, she replied, and I ate. So she blames another. The devil made me do it. So check this out. Here's what happens typically in our lives when we miss the mark, when we sin. Okay. Now, this is not a great picture of repentance by Adam and Eve. But we see this. Number one, they felt shame. When we sin, we feel a sense of shame. That's normal. There's good shame and there's bad shame. There's good guilt and bad guilt. It's that feeling of sorrow or, man, I I didn't do what was right. That will cause us to realize something's wrong. So they, they felt the shame because of their nakedness and there was this sense of loss of innocence. The second thing they did is they covered up. Now, this isn't a good thing, but we tend to cover up. We try to hide ourselves. David, when he commits adultery, he tries to cover it up. We try to cover our tracks. This is the first response, not a response of repentance. The third thing they did is they hid from the presence of God. Do you notice that when you miss the mark, we all feel this. We don't want to be around the thing that's going to convict us. We don't want to be around even Christians. We tend to isolate, dudes especially. I notice like when somebody stop, stops coming to church for a long period of time, you know, without a real good excuse, I'm saying, 
it, it tends to be they're in a funk spiritually. Um, there's some sin in their life or something's going on that they don't want to be around people that might expose it or ask or prod. And so we tend to just want to hide from God and anything that has to do with God, right? Then, then they're filled, filled with fear and insecurity. I hid because I was afraid and I'm insecure. We start to doubt our relationship with God. We fear being around him. We fear talking to him or we feel insecure about approaching him. This is, again, not what the call of repentance would have us to feel or do or give into, but this is what we see in Adam and Eve. Then they blame and we tend to blame. Well, if you weren't like this, then I wouldn't be like this. If you didn't talk to me like that, I wouldn't talk to you like this, right? Instead of owning our sin, we tend to cast it on something else or someone else, right? So what does God do? Um, later in the passage, uh, well, we read a little bit of it, but he goes looking for him. When we sin, God isn't running away from us. He's actually coming after us. He loves us, right? And then do, does God still speak to you when you miss the mark? Well, he, he does. He, he spoke to them. He actually brought them into a conversation. Notice he didn't yell at them. He didn't threaten them. He just said, hey, what's going on? Hey, where are you? You know, when we're in sin and we miss the mark, God comes looking for us. That's the heart of the Father, right? And then he does pronounce consequences. But in the midst of pronouncing consequences, he says, Adam, here's the consequence because of your sin. Eve, here's the consequence. Satan, here's or the serpent, here's your consequence. But he also prophesies victory over the serpent or over the devil or over sin when he's speaking to Eve about her children and her seed. And out of this seed, the woman, Jesus would be born and he would crush the serpent's head. But he also clothes them and he mercifully present, prevents them from eating of the tree of life, meaning that he doesn't let them eat from that tree that would keep them alive forever in a state of sin. So we have to understand here that God, even when we miss the mark, even when we fall short, he searches after us. He still speaks to us. He makes clothing for us. He still provides. He covers us. He, he will share. There are consequences for sin, right? But then he, he provides a way of redemption and, and he prophesies in his word. He speaks about the redemption that comes after we get it right with him and the, the path of healing and restoration and deliverance he provides, right? So our, our sin brings sorrow because it pains God. And what we do with that sorrow is vital. So here we go. There's two kinds of sorrow that we feel when we sin, right? Number one, uh, well, we'll read 2 Corinthians 7.10. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation without regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. So check this out. There is godly sorrow, and that's what will cause us to repent. Find life, no regret. But then there's also a sorrow that has nothing to do with repentance. There's a feeling bad. There's a, there's a, a grieving and a mourning and a sting from doing wrong that Christians can feel and unsaved or secular people, even atheists, can feel worldly sorrow. Man, I feel bad for doing that. But it doesn't bring about transformation. And I want you to hear this, please, because I have fallen to this too many times that I, I think that the feeling bad and the saying sorry is repentance. Hey, I confessed it. I felt bad for it. I felt contrition, right? I, I even tried to make right of my wrong. And I thought that was repentance. That's actually not 
fully repentance. In fact, it can it can be completely not repentance, just feeling bad. So there's, I think, a lot of people that have gone through what I've gone through at times in my life that are in church, love Jesus, but but live in the cycle of worldly sorrow, therefore never change. So godly sorrow begins with the reality of our sin, but it ends with the source of our repentance defining our reality. But worldly sorrow, it's, it too begins with the reality of our sin, and it ends with sin becoming our reality. So instead of like God through our repentance defining our reality, sin ends up becoming our reality when we operate in worldly sorrow, right? Godly sorrow, it turns toward God to find healing and deliverance. The very one we offended. See, Adam ran from the presence of God, but repentance runs to God and says, I've made a mistake, Dad. I've fallen short. I missed the mark and I feel bad. God, I need your healing. I need your help. I need your forgiveness. Godly, uh, godly sorrow turns to the Lord. Worldly sorrow turns inwardly and finds a hellish despair. It will, it will exist in a, in a dungeon of despair. It will drag us into self-loathing and self-destruction because it doesn't turn its pain toward the only one who can provide healing and forgiveness. So it meditates and revolves the past over and over and over. And we live in the guilt uh, in, in our present state of all the past mistakes that we've made without turning our eyes toward a solution to the soul, right? So here's a, a great quote, and I believe a guy named David, uh, Paul David Tripp wrote this. Um, I, I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure I got it right. He says, Godly sorrow denotes a new direction, not just a mere confession, it's like a river that moves proactively toward a source and in, in the process cleanses itself. So it's us moving toward God in a new direction, changing from where we went toward God. And in the process of moving toward him, we are cleansed in that process of repentance. Notice that repentance isn't a one-time thing. It's actually a lifelong journey. Then he says this, worldly sorrow, however, is essentially a type of sorrow whose trajectory does not involve repentance. This type of sorrow could in uh, could involve confession of sin, or it could not. Regardless, the force of repentance, the impetus for change, is non-existent. Thus, worldly sorrow is not moving toward a source like a river does, but instead is stagnant like a reservoir, filling itself up with the murkiness and algae of pain and hurt day by day, with no outlets and only build up. This is uh, a tragic reality in so many of our lives. God doesn't find pleasure in us sitting in the pain of our mistakes. He gives us initial pain so that we can find joy again, so that we can find peace and restoration again. You know that God is not moved to forgive you because you wallow in your pain and you wallow in your past. You know that the Lord, it actually grieves him to see you unnecessarily grieving your mistakes without coming to him. Now, a great example of this worldly sorrow 
Maybe the ultimate example of this is Judas Iscariot, one of Jesus' 12 homies. So this guy walks with them. He's doing miracles. He's, you know, uh, he's in charge of the money. And uh, he sees everything Jesus does. He's a part of it. Well, then he betrays Jesus. And here's what happens. He goes to the religious leaders and he sets up Jesus and he says, hey, look, here's where you can find him. At this time, I'll help you make the, the arrest and you can have your man because they wanted to take this guy out. Well, he betrays them for 30 pieces of silver. Then all of a sudden he realizes what he's done. There's a recognition that he sinned. But watch what he does here. I'm wrong. He's emotionally wrecked over it. He's totally distraught. Man, some people think, wow, he's repentant. He probably wept and cried. He was filled with fear and anxiety. He knew he did wrong. And he actually takes the step of returning the silver. Surely that's repentance, right? He takes back the money and he says, I don't want it. I don't want this on my hands. We would say, man, that's a great picture of repentance. I mean, you should return money in that scenario. I'm not saying you shouldn't. But instead of turning to the Lord and saying, forgive me, God, for what I did, he just went into a deep dungeon of despair, self-loathing, and regret. And instead of turning the source of life, he ends up purchasing a field and Judas hanged himself. That is not repentance. And that is what worldly sorrow leads to, self-destruction inner withering and death. Now, this is a beautiful picture of godly sorrow, and this is what I'm going to close with. David, King David, known as a man after God's own heart, he he did a lot wrong. And if you notice a lot of the the heroes in our faith, they they didn't walk on water. They weren't perfect. They, uh, Peter walked on water, but he wasn't perfect. these, These were men and women who were jacked up like major screw-ups, but they knew the God to go to and their hearts, the one that we, the ones that we exalt as examples of faith, they, they show us in your mistakes and in your failures what to do with it. Let's look at David. This is after he, he spies on this woman bathing. Number one, I don't know whether there was outdoor bathtubs for guys to be on roofs looking, but he should have been at war, and uh, and instead he's lusting after this woman. He commits adultery with her. Um, she's uh, married to Uriah, and he's at war where David should have been. And then to cover up the fact that uh, she, he, she ends up pregnant, he has Uriah killed. Basically, he commits murder because he has the power as the king to put him in a situation where he loses his life. Great cover-up. Everything worked. It worked perfectly until Nathan showed up at his door, the prophet, and in a very creative, in a very tactful way, confronts him on a sin, and David's busted. He confesses, and here's what he writes after he confesses. And this is what we'll close with, a beautiful repentance and godly sorrow. Here's what he says. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. We see here that repentance must recognize God as loving and merciful merciful, or it will keep on running and hiding in despair. If we don't come to God understanding that he is merciful and he wants to extend that love, that unfailing, steadfast love, we will find ourselves 
refusing to go to a God that we believe will not accept us. The prodigal son would never have come back to the father in Luke 15 had he not believed that his father would at least give him a position as a servant, even though he was a son. And when he got home, he got more than he expected. That God's love didn't just see him afar. The father ran to him, put his arms around him, and said, my son that was lost is now found, who was dead is now alive, and he threw a party. It doesn't mean there wasn't consequences, but we have to see that God is good or we won't turn to him in our sorrow. And then he goes on and David says, Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Repentance here, we see that repentance doesn't just seek to feel better. It seeks to be washed and cleansed fully. A lot of times I've come to God and I'm like, I'm repenting, I'm saying sorry, because I just don't want to feel sorrow anymore. I don't have a, a serious intention about changing it's just that like, I'm tired of feeling this and God, if you could just take this negative vibe out of me, I don't want to feel bad vibes anymore. I want to feel good vibes, God. And so I say this repentance prayer, hoping for good vibes. But what I should hope for is a cleansing and a washing. That's a pure repentance. Then he says this, against you, you only have I sinned. And done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Here's the thing. Repentance recognizes that all sin, every sin, is against God, who is perfect and holy. Well, I didn't sin against God. I just sinned against this dude who punched me in the neck, so I punched him back. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't defend yourself. I, I taught our kids to throw bones. You know what I'm saying? Like, you got to be able to handle, handle your business. But... There's a time where we attack and we go after people or we respond to an offense. And in responding in a sinful way, we end up sinning against God, thinking that he has nothing to do with it. But if we understand that we're hurting and grieving the heart of a holy God, it will help us understand better how to love our enemies and the consequence of, of sin. He goes on then and says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. And in sin, my mother conceived me. <clears throat> Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide my face from my sin. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Here's the thing. Repentance recognizes that the problem of my sin is my nature from birth. And it requires a divine miracle of God who creates, right? To create something means to make something that's not there, right? He's creating in me a heart that wasn't there before. I had a sinful, uh, uh, tainted heart, but I'm saying God I need you to do what I can't. I need you to create something new in me that I can't myself and renew a right spirit in me. Notice he said to um, cleanse me completely, wash me whiter than snow. God doesn't just clean us up a little bit. Repentance wants the whole deal, right? Then he says, this is beautiful. Verse 11, cast me not from your presence. <clears throat> Take not your Holy Spirit from me. King Saul was 
concerned when he got caught in sin. He was concerned about losing his position, losing his power, losing his prestige, and losing his popularity. Repentance doesn't care about losing power, prestige, or popularity. It is It trembles at the thought of losing the presence of God. True repentance is like, God, of course I don't want consequences. Of course I don't want my world to fall apart. But most of all, I don't want to feel distant from you. I can't live if I don't sense your spirit with me. I've got nothing if I don't have you. Even if I stay on the throne and even if life gets better from here after my sin, God, it's nothing. It's it's a lie. If I don't have you with me, I am a broken, miserable man or woman. I love that. David was concerned about the presence of God. And then a few more here. He says, restore to me the joy of your salvation. You know, this is the cool thing about repentance. Repentance doesn't look backwards. It might for a second. Here's what I did. But you notice when David's repenting, he doesn't even mention what he did. I'm sure he had those conversations with God. But he had settled that, the confession part of it. So he's done the confession. But now he's doing the repentance. And the repentance is, I am looking forward to joy, not backward to despair. I am looking forward to uh, restoration and lightheartedness and, and, and fulfillment. I'm not looking backwards anymore to the mistakes and the dark, gloomy dungeons that have beat me up over and over and over again. In fact, those are the chains that Satan holds us in. Don't you know this? Satan uses a lure. He lures us with this flashy sin. Oh, look what you could have. It's better than what you have with God. We, we bite onto it. He sets the hook. And then we want to swim back to God. But he keeps us on the hook with shame and condemnation. He's like, look how terrible you are. Look at what a fail you are. Look how bad you've, you've made a mistake. Look how much you've displeased God. Look how you've grieved people, right? First, he's like, look how good it is. And then he's like, look how terrible you are. But, but, but repentance, it says, God, you're about new beginnings, and I want to feel the joy of that. Verse 13 says, then I, I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud your righteousness. Lord, open my lips, open my mouth, <clears throat> and it will declare your praise. I love this because he in his repentance, he recognizes that guilt and despair cripple our witness and our worship. He's like, man, once I'm free from this guilt, then I'm going to tell sinners about your way and they're going to turn to you. And and once this guilt and despair is lifted off of me from, oh God, I'm, I'm going to be able to sing and my mouth and my tongue are finally going to be unlocked and I'll be able to just sing forth what my heart really wants to give. Have you noticed that when you're under the power of guilt and shame from your past, it's hard to worship God, it's hard to feel God, and it's hard to care about others the way you should. It's hard to be compassionate when you're crushed with despair. But repentance says, God, lift this so I can lift praise and I can lift others out of despair as well. And then finally, in closing, he says, for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it you will not be pleased with burnt offerings, the sacrifices of God, or a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, 
O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then uh, then will delight, then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, and whole burnt offerings. Then bowls will be offered on your altar. You know what's cool about this? He's like, God, you don't want burnt offerings. This is Old Testament. You don't want burnt offerings. So don't, don't light your pets on fire thinking it's going to please God. Okay. Just FYI, I felt like I had to say that. I felt like it was spirit led. He said, God, uh, God, you don't delight in burnt sacrifices. You want my heart right. But then he says, once my heart's right, then I'm going to offer burnt sacrifices. Wait, I thought he just said God didn't delight in that stuff. No, he does delight in it, but he doesn't delight in it from a heart that is wicked, corrupted, and, bow and, 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 and crushed with despair under the weight of worldly sorrow. Isn't this powerful? What a great insight. What do we offer to God as our burnt offerings and sacrifices? It's our Christian disciplines. It's our Bible study. It's our service in the church. It's our prayer time. It's our helping others. It's bearing one another's burdens. Yeah, we should do that. But it doesn't mean much to God when it's being offered from a heart that is not devoted to him in love. God's like, yeah, it's important, but it really doesn't mean anything unless it's coming from a a pure motive or a pure place. First Corinthians 13 talks about that. Even though I give all my stuff to the poor and give my body to be burned as a sacrifice and you know, sing with the tongues of men, men and angels, if I have not love, it profits me nothing. Yeah, it still profits them. They got money and they were hungry, but it doesn't profit me any, right? So God is saying, it's the repentant heart that I now receive those disciplines or sacrifices from in a way that I consider worship. So this is the call to beautiful repentance. And I don't know where you're at. I don't know what you're going through or what you've been through. I don't know if you are wallowing in a dungeon of despair that's crushing you and stealing the very breath from your spiritual lungs that, that holds you in a place where you just don't want to get up. You don't want to be around people. Um, maybe you're just nagged with a constant feeling where you're not forgiven. Well, here's the thing. Whether you're a non-Christian who needs to today come to Jesus Christ, put your faith on the one that can save you because he is the way, the truth, and the life. And there's no forgiveness except through the only sacrifice that is acceptable to God, which was the perfect man who became sin on the cross so that our sins could be forgiven if we would accept his loving sacrifice and invite him into our lives. Maybe you need to believe on Jesus today. Or if you're a Christian, we need to get out of self-pity and we need to move toward um, the Savior, salvation, and true healing. So I just want to pray right now. And why don't you pray with me? And let's believe that God, right now, where you're at, is going to do a work in your heart. And he's going to bring you from worldly sorrow to godly sorrow to repentance into healing. And there'll be no regret. Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, I don't know who is watching this right now, but I pray that by your love and by your mercy, you would draw us to realize that you are a God whose posture is open arms, who, who will run to us when we make a motion toward you. God that throws the robe around us, kills the fatted calf and celebrates our repentance and grieves our, our, our lostness. And I ask right now that shame would be lifted, condemnation would be lifted off of anyone watching 
that God, we would get out of that dungeon of despair and turn to you and be changed. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, thank you for tuning in today. If this will be a blessing to someone you think, then pass it along on social media. If you want uh, more information on what we're doing or the fast that we're inviting people to join, go to redeem.church or go to redeem.church forward slash fast. God bless you. Have a great week. God loves you.